Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today my guest is Mark Mills, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science, where he co-directs an institute on manufacturing science and innovation. Mark served in the White House Science Office under President Reagan and subsequently provided science and technology policy counsel to numerous private sector firms, the Department of Energy, and U.S. research laboratories. Mark and I discussed his new book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. We discussed climate change, renewable energy, the future of work, and much more. I hope you find it interesting. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Really pleased to be joined by Mark Mills today. And Mark, I'd like to start our conversation with your latest book that just came out in early November. The book is titled The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s, which to me sounds fantastic. In the book, you predict an economic boom unmatched since the 1920s, one that's going to transform the labor market. Today's labor market is incredibly challenging because of COVID and other concerns. Education, healthcare, manufacturing, and travel. Travel is actually one of my passions. You predict the boom is not going to come from any single big invention, but from the confluence of radical advances in microprocessors, materials, and machines, all accelerated by the cloud. Look, I'll be honest, I'm not a tech guy. I hear about the cloud all the time. Why don't we start with you explaining to my listeners what this uh, ambiguous cloud is all about? I know. It's really, I appreciate you having me on, Jason. And, you know, we don't, you don't have to be a tech guy, although it's a funny word. I mean, if you trace the history, the, the etymology of the word technology is fascinating too. It's a very modern word, frankly. We've always had machines and invented stuff. And we've, we've now got new words that people have got comfortable with. I mean, if I said internet in 1990, people would look sort of doe-eyed and blank. Not stupid people, just like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I think that's sort of where we are with the cloud, even though we have the internet as a predicate. The cloud is, a, is, is different from the internet as the internet was different from telephony, which is saying a lot. By that, I, but I, by that I mean, and I define sort of the constellation of hardware and the software and services that are data centers that are by themselves, that new odd word, he's a warehouse sized, shopping mall sized buildings full of computing that are remote where we store and digest information. The wired and wireless networks that connect us to them, the smartphones that everybody has in their pockets, purses, glued to themselves practically, the uh, connections to machines, <clears throat> not just machines 
in in our, our lives, like Alexa or Siri Voice, but to televisions, to manufacturing machines, to health care records, that whole constellation of things that are all glued together and mediated by uh, both storage and processing information is the cloud, right? It's different than the internet in the sense that, if, if put it this simplistically, first thing we did with the internet was say, we're going to replace mail. You got mail. Remember the AOL line in the movie with Tom Hanks. So big deal. Uh, we changed book selling in mail. But what we have in the cloud is access to kind of utility function for computing that is quite consequential. I mean, it's certainly as consequential and more so than just the utility function for electricity. And we're distributed energy. It's just distributing knowledge, making it easier to access inf not information, but inferential knowledge. We all do this every day. You use the cloud when you use Uber or Airbnb or when you use um, any of the apps for mapping because so much of the information that is digested quickly for you and sent to you to answer a question, where can I rent a place in, uh, in, in Granada, Spain? Can you imagine doing that 20 years ago? I mean, we can, I can. I was around 20 years ago. What you're not, you're doing much more than a communications function. You're disintermediating all kinds of um, related uh, issues about geography and price and time, seller and buyer, and you make it sort of seamless and, and easy. So you, that that's what we are doing every day with the cloud, but we've done it first on things that are easy. That is by we, engineers brought information amplification to information-centric tasks first, like news and entertainment, planning, travel, finance. That's much easier. That's about 20% of our economy. Bringing that kind of uh, reduced friction to everything else, which is the 80% of our economy, food services, supply chains, how we live and move, much more difficult. It's just technically more difficult. We now know how to do those things, not because we just invented them yesterday. So the core thesis of my book is things that make a difference to our next decade or things that were invented a decade or two ago and are just now being made commercially viable. Commercial viability has much bundled into it. Price, convenience, and safety. All those things matter, especially in the world of atoms instead of bits. You don't want your car driving you off cliff, simplistically speaking. Self-driving cars, obviously, everybody's... They were overhyped early on. They're still overhyped. They're coming. They're much harder. Self-flying airplanes are much easier and drones. And But there's a lot of other things that are happening outside of what people think of as, quote, tech, which is computing and communications. We have a materials revolution that's literally unprecedented in every possible sense of scale and quality since the dawn of chemistry 150 years ago. And we have machines... Uh, that can manufacture and do things, the machines revolution, that are certainly more, more fantastical than what Karl Marx worried about when he wrote about the, the dystopian features of the industrialization of, of the manufacturing of products. I'll get one example. I mean, 3D printing was overhyped when it came out, invented three decades ago. Well, cars didn't become useful till three decades after they were invented. Cars became useful in the 20s, 1920s price and convenience, but they've been around for 30 years. Plus, people had cars. Not many people had cars. We went from tiny percentage of homes having cars in 1920 to a third of homes by the end of the 20s. And then, of course, next decade, you know, 60% of homes. And from there, where we are today, the 3D printers 
can essentially mimic how nature grows parts. That's what a printer does in effect. That's really consequential. You can't machine parts the same way you grow parts. So it's not just that we'll have sort of mass customization. It's not going to be like Star Trek. That's, you know, but people always get over their skis, goofy examples. It's not Star Trek. But it is consequential to be able to grow parts. In fact, it's consequential enough that it's not science fiction to point out that there are plenty of engineers and researchers, including Dean Kamen of, of, of Segway fame, uh, are building printers that can print organs, human organs. Now, I print, you don't do de novo from dirt, right? It's, but you're printing scaffolds that allow one to grow uh, replacement organs for people who've been injured or have illness. Boy, th this is not theoretical anymore. This is things that are on track. It's maybe at about the stage that, uh, you know, organ transplants that we do now to harvest organs were in the early days, but it'll come a little faster because it's going to be accelerated by I'll say it again, the cloud, the cloud's power of information amplification. So it's a long answer. I'm sorry, but just, you could think it's, you know, I took on a very big sphere of technology and tried to explain it in my book why this is consequential from a sort of a foundational historic perspective. And then look at what it means for healthcare, for our, our jobs, you know, automation creating jobs instead of destroying them, what it means for entertainment, education, and travel. Travel. You know, entertainment is a beautiful thing. We sort of denigrate in the COVID times essential versus non-essential jobs. What a, what a grotesque construct. First, morally, all jobs are essential. Secondly, in a civilization that does more than survive, the jobs that are essential to make, make makes life interesting are things that make us happier, healthier, things things more conveniently. These are these are essential jobs too. Those all become much easier uh, and more interesting in what I would call a cloud-mediated future. And is that essentially the thesis of the Roaring 2020s? So although some people did it enormously well during COVID, but there are so many people who are harmed, yeah. economic devastation around the world, people are pessimistic. What's your message to those who are worried, worried about the world, but with the cloud, what, can they, what do you think they could see moving forward? COVID was certainly understates that it was a, a horrific episode in, in our modern civilization. I think most people setting aside, and it's not a lot to set aside, it's a serious disease, and it was obviously an epidemic. It's not like that's not true. But the manner in which governments around the world chose to deal with it will, I think, go down in its history as one of the most feckless reactions to how to deal with an epidemic, especially given the other tools we have. We have we have we, we government malfeasance, and I don't mean criminality. I just mean intellectual malfeasance will be seen, already being seen, I think, is epic. Depressed a lot of people, damaged a lot of people, damaged a lot of businesses. But the flip side to this, and, and I don't want to go down the, the COVID rabbit hole, so to speak, but the flip side is it's kind of the great, great acceleration. Many things that were already underway got accelerated. Many good things. One of them, uh, I think, is going to be not that everybody's going to work remotely. That's not going to be the case. More people will re work remotely going forward than in the past. There'll be more hybrid workspaces for many kinds of jobs. But most kinds of jobs can't be done remotely. Most people have to show up. And there are many good reasons to show up at work, even for kind of the work that you can do often at home, but not all the time. Because human beings are what they are. 
we know clinically, we know a lot of research that shows that innovation and creativity, cooperation are amplified by, by co-location of human beings, which just works better when we're together. doesn't mean always that way, but it's definitely a lot of data that shows that the case. Any, anybody that's managed enterprises knows, knows this. We all know this intuitively. What's better about the future? I'll, I'll give a simplistic example. What we accelerated was, a, was the transition towards different kinds of work. So we, we have a lot of news about the supply chain challenges because of the shards in large measure of skilled, skilled labor. There's been an aging out of the, the so-called silver tsunami of the workforce that have chosen to do a lot of the jobs that are in the skilled trades. Those jobs haven't been eliminated by robots. They, they, it, we just, we've built a culture where a lot of young people, young men and women, don't go to those jobs. They're day class A, I guess. Well, I think we've had a great acceleration on, on the importance of those jobs. Their salaries are already being elevated. We can elevate those salaries because the one thing that productivity does, what automation does, is makes it, it, uh, it makes the product cheaper with lower inputs. Lower inputs means I can pay the person more. If I can pay the person more, I can attract them to those trades, if you like, those jobs. And importantly, the kinds of things that we have with technology now that automate a sort of um, so-called VR and AR, virtual reality and augmented reality, mostly focused on games and gaming today are profoundly important for accelerating skilled trades training. So if you think of the cloud as taking some jobs away because, uh, you know, the, the efficiencies the cloud offers disintermediate certain jobs. It also makes it easier to find another job. We already know this because you can, just like Airbnb, get counterparties to know each other more easily. You can do interviews initially more easily. But it also makes training people, upskilling them easier. The example I use in my book, which I think is maybe the one that's the least, least appreciated, is in the physical training of skills. A century ago, a guy named Link invented the flight simulator and to train pilots how to fly because what they learned early in aviation is that the death rate of pilots learning to fly was really high. It's, you know, it's a skill. You don't want to practice the skill until you've gained some skills. It's, a, it's, just a, it's a vicious cycle. You have to fly to learn how to fly. The simulator profoundly reduced the uh, death and accident rates for uh, pilots learning to fly. It's standard operating procedure. Uh, simulators for lots of skills are now possible because of virtual and augmented reality and the kinds of tools that exist. We're going to see a lot more of that, including in medical professions. We already have businesses that are making simulators that allow physicians to take a high resolution image of your body, MRI class images, to first practice a complicated surgical procedure on your virtual body before they do it on your real body. Uh, this, as soon as you state that, you can say, well, that, that would be better. I'd rather than practice it. And you'll have better outcomes. Well, in the, in the economist world, a better outcome is called productivity. You have fewer deaths, but it's not just fewer deaths and fewer complications. If you're a cynical economist, that's cheaper by a lot. But instead of having all the complications that are expensive in medicine, we reduce those things. That's true of drug discovery. I mean, famously, a lot of what went on in the development of this vaccine is true for a lot of drugs now. A lot of the discovery is done in silico. You can begin to do clinical trials in computers that simulate biological functions. We're getting better and better at that. That will accelerate 
drug discovery instead of instead of make it more expensive to develop new drugs, less expensive. Mark, I heard you once speak about the 2015 Pope Francis encyclical about caring for our common home. And for those who don't know, an encyclical is one of the highest forms of communications by the Pope and usually deals with some aspect of Catholic teaching. I admit, I didn't know what an encyclical was. I, <laughs> I, I looked it up after I read about your, your comments. Yeah. And in this encyclical, the Pope critiqued environmental degradation, degradation and global warming and called for the abandonment of fossil fuels. Now let's fast forward to 2021, to the UN Climate Change Conference that just took place in Glasgow, Scotland. The Glasgow Climate Pact is the first time the outcome of an international climate summit explicitly mentions fossil fuels. There was a great deal of controversy over the phrasing of fossil fuels and the phasing out of coal and fossil fuel subsidies, and they actually didn't get there. Where do you think the summit came out on fossil fuels, and do you think we're going to need to continue to rely on fossil fuels despite the rise in renewable energy? This interesting question, which I talk about in my book some, and I wrote about it in, a pre- in other previous writings in a book. But uh, so let, let me permit me to sort of context before I give my answer. Well, I'll give my answer in advance. We're going to be using hydrocarbons, which are called fossil fuels, oil, oil, gas, and coal, for a very long time, a really long time. Not set aside whether we should or shouldn't. We're going to. I'll explain in a minute why. It's just, it doesn't matter what the, the, the Glasgow summit said or did. The data don't show that, and the physics don't show that there's going to be a, quote, transition away from, from oil, coal, and gas. It's just whether people like that or not, that's just the facts. But let, let me back up. It's just two macro observations because I've studied, written about, talked about energy for decades. It's a fascinating field. Because energy is the glue of the universe and life, we really we throw the words around energy pretty lightly. It's pretty deep physics. It's actually pretty deep philosophy and theology. Energy is a weird, a weird thing. We use the same unit to measure uh, energy. It's exactly the same unit if the energy is in the form of uh, fire burning on with wood, and if the energy is a laser that's doing um, surgery. We use the exact same unit. Uh, or if the energy is carrying photons in a fiber optic cable to communicate to the cloud. Same unit. This would be like um, treating a, a pound of dirt, a pound of gold, and a pound of wheat is the same thing, all measured with pounds. How do you measure the difference among those things? Well, actually, in physics, it's called entropy. It's the uh, redu- removal of disorder, which is kind of a, ph- a philosophical and theological thing. Uh, it's the add, adding of knowledge. It's adding of beauty. It's a, it's a it's the removal of chaos and disorder. That always costs energy, by the way, in the universe we live in. So that philosophical point is important because the way you get less disorder, less environmental damage, this damage is, is disordered by definition. But the destructive things are disordered things. Things that are beautiful, things that are safe, are or highly ordered and highly controlled. Very difficult to do. Nature fights back on that. Nature wants to be disordered. Don't know why, except when it comes to life. Life wants to be ordered. Isn't that weird? So thinking is the most ordered thing, even if we don't think it is, in the in the universe. So two things um, about energy when it comes to what we, we do in society. First, we have to... Uh, it's worth acknowledging and it's important to to know that the reason that we can insulate ourselves from the predations of nature, what the climate and nature does to us, 
pathogens and natural disasters, temperatures, is because of technology. Full stop. That's the reason. It's always about technology. Technology creates wealth. Wealth creates your ability to buy more technologies more and, and distribute and use them for more people. It's a virtuous circle. It's all environmental protections come from wealth. Technology comes from wealth. Yes, we have to organize ourselves intelligently about using technologies. But fundamentally, the, the, it's, is, it is entirely the case that wealthy societies have the luxury of protecting themselves from predations of nature. Even if we cause those predatory impacts ourselves, that's wealthy. Well, it takes wealth. Wealth comes from productivity. So the first order thing that governments need to be focused on is to get more protections from nature, including natural diseases, if you like, is more wealth, more wealth for more people. This is what my book is essentially about. So I, I think that gets lost in the prescriptive desire to fix a specific problem with governments, which don't have scalpels as tools. Governments at best have, you know, sledgehammers as tools. It's very difficult to do surgery with a sledgehammer. Governments tend to want to try to do that. So the second point I would make, though, then, and when it comes to energizing our society, is that we, we're, we're stuck with the physics of the universe we live in. <laughs> we can't change some things. We can have ideas, but we can't change the fact of the existence of atoms and materials. The periodic table is are the 90 plus elements that exist in the universe. I say 90 plus, obviously. Any physicist list or chemist listening know that uh, the number of elements is much larger than the 92 you were taught. Uh, in school, we, we got odd, super heavy elements. Basically, there's a limited set of atoms we can use. We have to use energy to convert the atoms into other forms that are useful. That's locked into the physics. You can't change that. The reason I say that is that the sunlight and wind, which everybody thinks can replace everything, can't. Why can't they? Because they're very diffuse energy sources. And they take lots of materials to make the machines. It takes a thousand percent more physical materials to produce a unit of useful energy using wind and solar than using a combustion turbines or oil and gas. Thousand percent more physical materials locked into the physics of the universe we live in. Could I make it a little better than a thousand percent? Sure. But you can't make it the same because the sun and wind are inherently diffuse. If you build machines, machines all wear out. It's in the universe we live in, which means there's no such thing as renewable energy. It's a misnomer. The machines, wear, what matters are the machines. The machines wear out. You have to be replacing them. So whether the machine is capturing heat from combustion or heat from the sun, it's still a machine that wears out. That's just... So what is, where does it take us on these, these, these summits? Well, we know that we've spent a trillion plus dollars in the last decade since the Paris Accord to in subsidies and direct spending to get non-hydrocarbon energy sources to expand, mainly wind and solar, some ethanol. And the world today gets about 3%, 3% of its energy from wind and solar and about 80%, 81% from hydrocarbons. The rest is wood get more energy from wood still globally than we do from solar energy, solar electricity. Uh, it's very difficult to change systems of the scale the world is. So even if you could get a lot more, and we will, we triple, quadruple wind and solar's contribution, which we will. We'll, we'll still, be at, uh, still be needing to depend on oil and gas and coal for more than the other half. That's just decades. These are very, very long uh, cycles. And they're not transitions or additive throughout all of human history. 
when we find new ways to make energy, it adds to the old ways. It doesn't mean that they, they dominate. In fact, we have fast growing use of wind and solar because they've gotten better. But they aren't replacing the, the net uh, requirements for society. They may replace in specific markets, specific times, but overall for humanity. Uh, so when the Pope's encyclical came, came out, you know, I mean, I, I, I read a lot of, not all of them, I read a lot of encyclicals just because they're interesting. The Pope has a lot of standing globally when Pope's, when Pope's speak. And, you know, what bothered me was sort of the disconnect, not because there was a, very much a focus on humanity and, and, and the, the husbanding, to use that old phrase, which probably is canceled these days, but cherishing and taking care of the planet environment the resources we have obviously it's important it's you know it's it's it's, a, it's our home so to speak but we do this with tools we do this because nothing we do this knowing th nothing is perfect we have to do these things with the mind that there's billions of people who are far poorer than us you know we, we live in the west where there's 800 cars per thousand people in most of the world where there's billions of people there are 800 people per car it, it, this, these people want to have a car. Are they going to use battery-powered cars? A lot will. But battery-powered cars aren't going to replace internal combustion engines anytime soon for very simple reasons of physics, but even just inertia. Even if there's hundreds of millions of electric cars in the future, right today there's 10 million. So in the next decade, we get to the, the forecast that the optimists are putting out of several hundred million electric cars. That won't replace more than 6% of the world's oil use. So if I put you in front of the protesters, the activists in Glasgow, and assuming they allow you to speak more than the 30-second soundbite that unfortunately today's listener maybe allows. Let's say you had two, three, four minutes to... to 37 seconds. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you had two, three minutes to impart your wisdom and explain, you know, it's great. We all agree we have to take care of the planet, but here's the reality of the situation. And by the way, also including things such as the impact to the environment from the creation Correct. of renewable energy, from right. the disposal of renewable energy. Correct. And now something maybe that's been pointed out through COVID, the reliance on other countries for your own national security and, and critical needs. What would you be able to tell them? And, and hopefully they would listen. A lot of people aren't listening to a lot of I mean, it's that, but that's not new. I think the first thing is to recognize the physical requirements, and a lot of environmental organizations are quietly doing this. That the physical requirements from the materials—copper, nickel, rare earths, manganese, zinc—the physical requirements for those materials to meet these so-called energy transition goals will create the largest increase in world mining in all of history. All kinds of all kinds of environmental, economic, and geopolitical consequences. It'll reshape the geopolitical dependencies in ways that are unprecedented. The you know three biggest suppliers of oil and gas to the world collectively have forty percent market share. The three biggest suppliers of energy minerals to the world collectively have sixty percent market share, and the biggest one is China. Changes the game. China is dependent on imports for oil and gas. We're dependent on imports for minerals. In fact. 100% of the minerals, that 17 minerals that we need are imported. And another two dozen, we import more than half. Building car, electric cars here, but mining the minerals that are needed to make them overseas, which is what's going on today, is equivalent to building gasoline-powered cars here and importing 100% of the gasoline, which is the path we're on. That's, that has geopolitical consequences, but 
importantly, it has environmental consequences. We'll be chasing an unprecedented expansion in mining for just copper and nickel alone in fragile parts of the world's ecosystem where some of the poorest people live. I want them to have jobs. Who doesn't? But we, we, we will be introducing uh, stresses on the environment political systems that literally are unprecedented in arithmetical and, and qualitative terms. This is not a good path. It's not mean we shouldn't have more battery-powered cars and windmills. We just need to recognize where the materials are coming from, who's supplying them, what the environmental, economic, and geopolitical consequences are. And they are, they are serious and they are epic. Do you think these activists don't understand it, glossed over it, were trying to hide it, don't have a clue about it, or what do you think's going on? I mean, you know, I think they mean well, and the you know the cause is good, but it sounds like what you're saying is it's also unrealistic. Well, the questions that are what I would call psychological versus physics are more difficult to answer. So we. Well, I have opinions about the psychology of this, obviously, and the politics of it. The physics is where I always start, the physical materials. First, people don't know. So there's a good deal of ignorance in the in the classic, not insulting sense of the word. They just don't know. Most people I've talked to, I mean, the avatar for the environmental future is a Tesla electric car, obviously, right? Because that's our most personal experience with seeing energy used because we buy gasoline, we put it in the car. We know what it costs, we know how it gets consumed, and, and we know we, it's just really visceral. And it's, it's a big source of energy use globally, too, obviously. So it's not invisible the way the cloud's invisible. The energy we're using now, you and I and everybody listening, is, is uh, pretty significant. The global cloud, by the way, for an energy calibration, uses more energy than global aviation. Or put in electricity terms, the global cloud in all of its forms uses twice as much electricity as the country of Japan. You just don't notice. But when you feel a car, you notice this. So most people don't know that the battery in an electric car weighs a thousand pounds. But what you say it, you think about, okay, it makes sense, I guess, right? But to produce that battery, I have to mine and move and process for the one battery, about 500,000 pounds of material somewhere on earth. It's a lot of material. Uh, I don't have to come close to, it's a 10th that amount of material over the life of a vehicle in the form of oil to operate that vehicle. So it's a really, it's a lot of material. They don't know that. They just don't know. And they don't know where it comes from. And then when they're told where it comes from, they're not so sure that we just can't make it better, easier. And mining is difficult business. And the mines are in Congo. They're in, they're in Brazil. They're in Bolivia. They're in the, the Arctic of, uh, of Siberia, where big Russian nickel mines are. So they don't know these things. Then when they're told these things, this has been my experience, they they sort of have a magical thinking way of, of this that, well, look how much how fast the smartphone got better, right? The tech, the computing tech that that psychology has been layered onto energy tech, called that for the for a deliberate reason, to imbue the sense of velocity of change like computing. But they are very different magisteria. The computers got better fast because of the physics of information which is nothing like the physics of moving things and fueling things and eating. It, it would be the equivalent of, of uh, uh, well, I'll give an example. Uh, it, it would be in a battery sense. If batteries got better at the same rate that computers got better, in another 10 or 20 years, you could have a battery the size of a paperback book that would fly an A380 around the world nonstop. 
as it stands today, if you wanted to replace the fuel in an A380 with batteries, Tesla class batteries, which are the best batteries in the world, by the way, the great batteries, you'd need a quantity of batteries equal to roughly the weight of four A380s. So we can make batteries twice as good. Well, sure. I need, need two A380s worth of batteries to fly an A380. It's not going to happen, right? I make them twice as good again, which is not possible, by the way, in the physics of batteries. So they don't know these things because they just, they've not asked. They're just buying a narrative. I agree with you. It's a, it's a well-meaning narrative in the sense that good, it's good that phase of technology. You just know what technology can do. Maybe another analogy would be that technology can make drones fly, right? These are, drones are pretty cool. They can't make people fly. You can fly once, you know, the proverbial, you jump off a cliff, you get to fly exactly once, gravity wins. If I want to re-engineer your body to make it so you can personally fly without mechanical assistance, you would be a bird, not a person, because it's not, you can't make a person fly. So it, it's these category errors are rampant in the, in the energy and technology space where people are believing things that are not possible or not true, but they are believing that we we can do pretty impressive magical things with the technology. One of them is creating more wealth, which is I think kind of magical. And and they're also reasonably wanting to do more to protect ourselves from nature's predations and to have less harm in the environment. Perfectly reasonable. But that again, I'll restate that comes from having broad wealth. And making energy cost more is wealth destroying. So if it were cheaper to use a new form of energy, new forms of energy that are cheaper get adopted very rapidly. New forms of energy that are expensive don't get adopted rapidly. They get subsidized, which is wealth-destroying, which is anti-humanist. And that that's sort of what I object to in the path that we're on because it's not a good path. It's wealth-destroying. And it actually doesn't improve the environment. It's wealth. It's environmentally destructive given what we can build. No one's proposing to build machines that don't exist today. They're proposing to build more of what already exists. What already exists won't work to do what people are aspiring to have happen. In 2018, you wrote a book, Work in the Age of Robots. You tackle the question of whether robots will replace humans and artificial intelligence. Does that mean that people will be out of work? What would your advice be to a college student today or even a high school student thinking about their future or their parents who are helping to guide them? What should they they be thinking about in terms of careers uh, based on uh, not only your 2018 book, but what's transpired since? It's, it's an interesting question. I, and, I, and the answer I give is maybe unsatisfactory because rather than picking a discipline, you know, imagine it's 1960 and giving advice, right? It's just to pick a long enough time frame, or even 1972, 73, uh, giving advice on what to do for a career based on the technologies and industries that were extant at that time. So the, the you know the answer I often give is it's important to develop the ability to think critically and have you know an education that's substantive if you want to go to college university. Uh, I don't think university is for everybody, frankly. Uh, a good education is, but that's a different thing. So the, my advice in, from an education perspective is if if one has technical aptitude, you know, like the, you like biology or chemistry or computer science, great, right? Uh, majority of people don't have the interest uh, or necessarily the aptitude. We're all differently skilled, just the way we got made or have different appetites. So if you're not in that area, what do you do? Well, you, you, you develop a critical thinking capacity to 
learn how to do the kinds of work that will exist in the future. By that, I mean, go back to 1960. If you map out the kinds of jobs that existed in 1960, the kinds of jobs, to give a trivial and obvious example, teller and typist. 60% of the jobs that, that existed as a kind of job don't exist today. They just don't exist as jobs. But we're not, we don't, if technology destroyed work, then you'd have 60% unemployment, right? We, we don't, we have the inverse. We have, we have underemployment. We have more jobs than there are people available to take them because the kinds of jobs change. And that would suggest that one has to be you know, relatively flexible and the ability to adapt to what kinds of jobs will do this. But uh, very simplistically, I think we'll have a far more work in entertainment and travel. And that sounds sort of like I'm being, uh, I don't know, this pessimistic about potential work and salaries. No, I think they'll be paid a lot more. It'll be a lot more interesting work. And why will we have more of that? Because wealthy societies always do more travel and entertaining because they can afford it. And as wealthy wealth rises and the complexity of the things that are involved in entertainment broadly go up, you pay people more to provide those kinds of services. And I don't mean, the, you know, the specific, you know, working at a hotel desk per se, although that's fine too, but just the whole broad penumbra of things that are involved in what we broadly call entertainment because we've become wealthier and there'll be a lot more work there and that'll be great. We already see this in entertainment with the number of jobs available. We'll call it for streaming long form stories on, on uh, streaming platforms is off the charts high for creative talent, for writers, for distribution, for the marketing, all, all those things. What a wonderful thing. That's totally cloud enabled, obviously, right? And it's going to become even more interesting as we move into virtual and artificial reality and artificial intelligence tools. Because what those tools will be, there's, there'll be tools that allow more people to be upskilled to participate in and create the, the uh, not only the content, but, but be part of businesses that expand that content. Same is true. Healthcare is going to become a much bigger industry, but it'll become more productive and therefore profitable, not a burden on society. And healthcare is not a burden. Goodness, think about that. The construct we've created around healthcare being some kind of burden. It's what in wealthy societies, we have the luxury of spending more of our wealth on staying healthier for the years that we get to live on earth. What a wonderful thing. Uh, what a great place to spend our, our wealth and resources on. So the, if what we've had is this meme that you are going to become a coder. So I write a bit about this in both my books. Is if that's the job of the future. Well, there'll be lots of coding. There'll be coding work in the future. Uh, right now we have about as many coders in the country as we have ranchers, which is a lot of people, but not a big share of the economy. <laughs> and the coders themselves are writing themselves out of work because they're making coding uh, go into what's called natural language, where if you're reasonably smart, not, not a computer science major, you'll be able to write code semantically, semantic web, so-called, right, in due course, to, to create code that you want for tasks that you want to have created without having to write a jot of C++ or Fortran or whatever, whatever, you know, Python, whatever, you know, uh, arcane sounding form of code non-coders have never heard of or can't play in. That, that why would, why would I want every kid to become a coder? It's silly. Why would I want everybody to have to go to coding school? Now it's useful to study that just like it's useful to study mathematics or any language. Um, th these are languages, and they're the languages of computers. Useful to know. For most people, I think useful to study a bit in school so you understand what, 
how they quote think, if you like, but not not where most jobs will be in the future. So I think we've only scratched the surface on on your current book, your prior book. I think uh, I'd love to have you back again as a guest to continue this conversation. Mark Mills, I really appreciate the time and thanks for sharing your wisdom. Thanks for having me. I'd love to come back. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat brought to you by Newsweek. I was glad to have Mark Mills as a guest and found his thoughts on how the cloud will unleash an economic boom compelling. I hope he's right. I also think we need to learn a lot more about renewable energy and some of its shortcomings. Very few people talk about its shortcomings when they boost climate change agendas. I appreciated his advice to college students and high school students about the future of work. I hope you found him interesting and informative. And if you did, please do share it in my other podcasts with your friends and family and colleagues. We've had some great guests in the past and we have so many more to come. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.